Father, this day we confess with the truth of this song, which is taken from your holy word, that our hope is in Jesus Christ. If our champion, if our Messiah, of our great conqueror has declared victory over the grave, the greatest threat of all, then what have we to fear? Truly, your word is true when it says and assures us that neither height, depth, nor things present, nor things to come, principality, power, things on earth, things in heaven, not hell itself is able to separate us from the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We know this for certain because he is risen. And in so doing, he conquered the grave, conquered sin, and conquered the judgment that was due our sin by absorbing it in his own body and blood, which was shed on that cruel cross of Calvary. This day, it is the name of Jesus Christ around which we gather. He is why we are here. This day, it is the word of Jesus Christ to, where we, to which we turn our attention as our ground and hope and the standard whereby we judge ourselves and the world around, the standard whereby we repent and ask that the Spirit might conform us to the image of Christ revealed in His Holy Scripture. And it is to these things, Lord Jesus, that we ask you to change our heart, that we might love them more and appreciate them, value, treasure, and proclaim that which is certain and established forever, unchanging, because it is your word. We thank you, God, for the opportunity as you gather your saints to feast upon the wealth of riches in your Holy Scripture. I pray that you would be blessed and honored, glorified, magnified, and that in the preaching of your word today, and that you would equip your church, be faithful and consistent to proclaim the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, to world yet in darkness. And I pray that you would magnify these means and use them to the call of lost to repentance and hope, that more might join our ranks, because Jesus Christ is worthy of more voices to echo praises to his holy name. And it is in that name we pray today. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a privilege and blood-bought honor it is for us to gather together as the saints of God, to open up the Holy Scriptures sovereignly, miraculously preserved for our edification and for our grounding. And I pray that you would do so in a heart of reverence, an attitude of worship as we continue in our service today with the proclamation of God's Holy Scripture. In order to facilitate our continuing series in Genesis, would you turn with me today to Genesis chapter 6, I'm sorry, 26. And let us continue in our series, understanding more about God's purposes and salvation by following the life and legacy of Abraham and now the next generation, second generation of covenant heirs uh, pictured in Isaac. We pick up on Isaac's story in Genesis 26, having been introduced to him in 25, at least independently so. We've seen him offered on the altar as the significant son was commanded to be sacrificed. And then we see a substitute lamb provided for him in the bush. We're introduced to Isaac in those terms in Genesis 22. Nevertheless, the primary character there, the featured, uh, st the featured member of the story is Abraham. Later, though, as Abraham has died in Genesis 25, the page turns to begin to catalog and chronicle the following generations among them Isaac and even his children who were born in chapter 25, Jacob and Esau. Now we return in chapter 26 to follow Isaac's unfolding story. Today's message is entitled The Next Generation. That would be the generation after Abraham, 
Another title could be covenantal succession, how the promises of God will continue. That's what succeed means, to continue after. The next generation and covenantal succession in that next generation is a featured theme in our text today. This relates to the gospel and our own experience, hence the aim of this morning's message. My goal in preaching is to proclaim the ground of our gospel inheritance. To proclaim the ground of our gospel inheritance revealed to us in type and shadow picture and prophecy in Genesis 26. As you're able and out of reverence, would you stand once again for the reading of God's scripture today? As we consider Genesis 26, verses 1 through 5, listen as the word of God is proclaimed in your hearing today. Verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. This is the word of God. You may be seated. A couple more notes by way of context to catch us up in our storyline. Abraham has died in Genesis 25. We read of this, verse 7. These are the, uh, the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. A harbinger of things to come, an indication of the covenant succession to the next generation. The next verse, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons buried him in the cave at Machpelah. One of those sons would represent the hope of the covenant promises of God continuing. Kids, who would it be? Would the covenant promises come through Isaac or Ishmael? Which one? Shout it out, kids. Isaac is correct. And so then the story turns to chronicle, to detail, to document Isaac's life and experiences. And a few of them are listed by way of illustration how God will be faithful to preserve the promises to Abraham and to all Abraham's lineage and spiritual lineage through the called or covenant line. Abraham has died. The calling, therefore, to sojourn in faith of obtaining covenant promises has now been passed on to Isaac, the appointed son. We are about to witness another momentous occasion profoundly confirming the purposes of God to Abraham's line. And that comes by way of covenant reiterated or stated again to the covenant son, Isaac, the next generation. This account in our text today is marked by striking parallels throughout. So, of course, you've already noticed, I trust, that in this delivery of covenant promise to Isaac, there's echoes. It sounds familiar. Some of the language is virtually word for word. What God had prophesied, proclaimed to Abraham. Now he's visiting Abraham's son and giving once again assurance by way of divine revelation of his covenant promises. This isn't the only parallel, however. As we continue to read through the chapter, we find more ways that Abraham's and Isaac's life echo one another. This account is marked by striking parallels throughout. The experiences of father and son, 
Abraham and Isaac, are remarkably similar in two ways, at least, both in blessing and in frailty. Abraham and Isaac are both obvious sinners. Nevertheless, they have incredible blessings. Can we not relate to this? We are obviously sinners. We are frail. We are faulty. Yet, we have, by grace alone, become the heirs of the greatest treasure of all, eternal life. This was prefigured, and in the, or this was pictured in the experience of both Abraham and Isaac long before we were born. This context serves to communicate enduring truths of the gospel in spite of the sins that easily beset every generation. Sins that beset Abraham also tended to beset Isaac. Nevertheless, God is sovereign and His grace is sufficient. And this has been true and will be true since Adam until the Lord remakes everything, even the world itself, in His own image. In this way, that is by way of parallels, history itself displays the hand of God as repeated themes, recurring themes, are set against the backdrop of many similar things like events, attitudes, <clears throat> peoples, characters, geography, hardships, nations, and more. <clears throat> Isaac's experiences move us to an ask, may I suggest, important questions of our own calling even today. In other words, if these parallels prove that God works in similar ways and His Word is sufficient and relevant for every generation, what of Isaac's experience relates to ours? And what lesson or application might we draw from our text today? Well, here's one example by way of question. Do we sojourn, that means travel, in the land of our future inheritance with the faith that our world, our nation, is entirely the rightful claim of our covenant head, Jesus Christ? You see, Isaac also had a calling to travel, to sojourn, to be a temporary resident. But ultimately speaking, that land was his. It was promised by way of covenant, certified, uh, absolute uh, promise to his father, Abraham. And we read of that throughout the course of Abraham's life. Thus, Isaac sojourned in the land of future inheritance. That was his future inheritance. So we ask ourselves, do we have an attitude of confidence and security and assurance that we travel temporarily in a land that is our future inheritance? After all, does the, do the scriptures not say that the new heavens and new earth will be, will be the fitting habitation of the sons of glory one day? God remaking this whole creation in His image even as he's ransoming his blood-bought sons and daughters for the purposes of our eternal hope established, yes, even on this physical earth, is this not our future inheritance? How ought that shape the faith in which we travel in our day-to-day -day life? Isaac was called to have faith that his world, his nation, was entirely the rightful claim of his covenant head, Abraham. Just as we are called to the same kind of faith that our world, greater still, our nation, greater still than the promises and the limitations of Abraham's covenant, are the rightful claim of our covenant head, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now these concepts, drawn from our text, are reiterated in other portions of the Scripture, including 1 Peter. So we're reminded of some of our recent messages there. First, Peter tells us, the Apostle says, We are sojourners only insofar as we are dwelling in lands temporarily occupied by various nations and authorities. And all of these will ultimately be subdued by the true heir of all the nations of the world. That is our ascended Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can move 
one step beyond and ask this question, how much greater is Jesus Christ's rightful claim? If the lands of Canaan were secured for the lineage of Abraham by the covenant obedience of the federal or representative head Abraham, how much greater is the assurance and certainty of our own inheritance in Jesus Christ, whose perfect obedience to the will of the Father secured in substance our claim to God's future for us, what Abraham prefigured in type. And these are profound ideas and concepts, and in case some of them might appear or sound a little dense or confusing, we'll seek in the rest of this message to unfold some of these and to explain them. Let me give you a heading and three major points. Our heading today is as follows. Isaac is assured of Abraham's covenantal estate by way of the following. Covenantal estate, that would be the inheritance of God's promises. Isaac is assured, the next generation, covenantal succession, Isaac is insured the promises of God by way of the following. Number one, a providential occasion. We find this in verses one and two, that occasion would be famine. God uses the occasion of a famine to assure Isaac of the covenant promises. Number two, the word of God. Personal, direct revelation. God himself appears to Isaac. The word of God is given by the mouth of God to the covenant son. And number three, extrinsic, which means outside of, conditions. That would, that would be conditions outside of Isaac actually are the way by which the promises are secured. Isaac is assured of Abraham's covenantal estate, his spiritual inheritance, the promises of God by way of providential occasion, the word of God, and conditions outside himself, extrinsic, extrinsic conditions. Let's consider number one, providential occasion. Isaac is given the certainty and assurance in these moments that we read of today that his estate, his inheritance, the promises of God are in fact his. But notice the context in which this promise is delivered. Genesis 26, 1. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Does this circumstance ring a bell? Has there been a famine already? Well, yes, there has. In fact, the author, Moses, reminds us as much recalling the events of Genesis 12. So again, like father, like son, similar parallels, experiences, right? Notice Genesis 12.10, the following language, setting the stage for another event that has preceded our text today. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And perhaps you remember what followed. Abraham journeys to this distant country. He ends up misrepresenting the relationship between him and his wife, passing Sarah off as his sister because he feared the men of that area would kill him on account of his beautiful bride. Well, there's a parallel in our text today. In future weeks, we'll study it. Isaac and Abimelech have an interaction in which Isaac once again lies about Rebekah, in this case, saying that she is his sister because he is afraid of what might happen in the land. These are examples, these last two that I gave, of small faith, right? These are ways in which we see the frailty of the generations. Both Isaac and Abraham failed in this instance or in this example to sojourn in the land of their future inheritance with the faith that their world, 
Their nation, so to speak, the promised land, was entirely the rightful claim of Abraham and his descendants based on the assurance of God's word. But now God is going to use a hardship to make this even more clear to Isaac. And there's a famine in the land, and God uses this occasion of hardship to emphasize this truth. At first, this might seem counterintuitive to us. How is it that God uses hardships to make a point to His people? It's a consistent theme all through Scripture. I'm sure if we, were, if we could have our druthers, if we would prefer, Lord, how would, you, how would I prefer you make yourself known to me? Well, let's go sparing on the trials, heavy on the grace. Let's go, you know, not so uh, heavy on the difficulty and affliction, but let's maximize the blessing. I think that's the best way to make your point to me. That's the flesh speaking. In fact, the opposite is true. What is proven over and over again in the experience of human beings is that in moments of, uh, of easy living and overflowing blessing and ease, we tend to be very forgetful and we tend to lose contact with our desperate need for a Savior. And we tend to consider the conditions of His blessing sufficient grounds rather than the person that gave them to us in the first place. And God in His infinite wisdom and mercy will often intervene in such situations and give us a providential hardship. He will provide for us a reason to desperately cling to Him. God will give us a circumstance in our life that is a reason that we feel to our bones and that we feel in our anxious mind and deep within our souls and our day-to-day threat of very existence, a reason to desperately cling to Him. A famine is a great example. Now, history records famines as cataclysmic, devastating events. I mean, if you look even in the pages of Scripture, famines can move people, their impact socially in a society can, go, can be everything from immigration, moving from one place, uprooting your culture, your familiar surroundings, the geography and the place of your dwelling, your homestead, and where your prior generations have planted roots and moving entirely to a different region. Why? Out of desperation. Without food, without water, I can't live. So famines have been the cause of relocation. But the range of impact that a famine might have goes far beyond that even to cannibalism itself. There were times in the Old Testament during famines uh, by way of siege, so an enemy army had surrounded the city, that the breakdown and the desperation was so acute, was so protracted, was so intense that the people within the city walls began to eat their own children. To be too graphic, this is right out of Scripture. But this illustrates to us the possible depth of hardship that God will use as an occasion at times to make his point to his people. Is it worth it? Of course it is. This life is but a vapor. What is food? What is the bread? What is our daily bread if we don't have eternal life? What would it profit us to gain our next meal and lose our soul? So God uses the occasion of hardship, a providential occasion. It's a probationary hardship. That means it's a testing circumstance. It's a trial to lovingly discipline and speak to his covenant son, Isaac. Now, before I move on, let me just make this point. Our world today, the secular world, it understands the rebellious world even. You know, foreign policy, um, whatever, domestic policy, the way governments order themselves and the uh, propaganda outlets posture in our day. Powers that be understand the relationship between a quote-unquote existential crisis and promises of salvation. 
what is an existential crisis? Well, it's just a fancy word that means threaten your existence, you know? Like, if we don't do something about this, it could mean the end of our existence. That's what an existential crisis is. So if you made a column called existential crisis, and then you just read the headlines for a year, and every claim of an existential crisis you put underneath, it would be a long list by the end of 2021. Things like climate uh, change, existential crisis, 12 years left to live, they tell us. Therefore, what do we need? Green New Deal. You see? The connection between an existential crisis and promise of salvation. Climate change, Green New Deal. This is the way the world pitches salvation to us. Another example. Oh, economic collapse, depression, decline, re, uh, and, and so forth. And what do we need? A stimulus. Existential crisis, the threat of losing our job, the promise of salvation stimulus. COVID-19, a worldwide global pandemic. You know, existential crisis, what do we need? Government subsidized distributed vaccine. Existential crisis, hope of salvation. You see? Now, every single one of these examples are very fresh and relevant to us because they're given to us by way of propaganda in our experience. But note, if these are given independent of a biblical worldview and grounding, what are they? A false gospel? It is the world using the claim of an existential crisis to sell us a savior, to sell us hope, to sell us the reason to be optimistic about our future. But once you get into territory like that, that's called faith. That's called worship. That's called hope of something beyond and bigger than yourself. And now, if you put the wrong thing in that slot, you are an idolater. Notice the connection between existential crisis and Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ultimate hope for every legitimate existential crisis, and only in Him and in, in His Word is certainty and assurance secured. So when you think about it that way, a crisis that threatens us right to our very core may be by God's design to remind us, encourage us, and to etch upon our souls with an indelible marker, with that you know, permanent marker that we use in the job site that can survive the rain, or better yet, a diamond etching into a surface so that we do not ever forget that unless Jesus Christ holds out hope for our eternal life, we will die in our trespasses and sins. Yes, the threat of death and the wrath of God and hell that we deserve. There is nothing more existential uh, there's no crisis more existential than that. Why? Because our eternal existence is threatened. But the relationship between the existential crisis of the famine of the bread of life and the supply of Jesus Christ is evident in the gospel. And therein, God does some of his best work of communicating our need and his supply. So this is what's happening by way of this occasion. There was a famine in the land. But it's a perfect time for God to assure Isaac that in spite of this famine, he will preserve him. And in spite of this famine, he will make him rich, prosperous, and wealthy in the land. How is that even possible? Given that there's no rain, my crops are dead, and my flocks are withering, and I lost seven sheep today, and another donkey just gave up the ghost, and whatever else that Isaac had to endure during this time of privation in the land. Well, if we turn over just a few verses, we see that God turns the tables. But he does so by reassuring his uh, servant all the while that this test is meant to strengthen his faith. When the answer to the existential crisis, the famine, is the word of God, is God's provision, uh, causing Isaac's crops to produce a hundredfold, he will know that his 
Lord and Savior, the God of his Father, and the covenant assurances are the only place to find hope. And so this is what's going on. Under this providential occasion, we see that God uses this as a time to appear to his covenant called son. Verse 2, And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Now, one of the benefits of being a preacher is you have to go over and over and over and over your text until you get the foggy, this is speaking personally, myself, I have to go over and over and over in a text until finally the cobwebs of my superficial reading, my short-sighted understanding, my limited perspective, and the distractions of the week are swept away. And hopefully by that means, the Spirit allows me to see something profound in His Word that I otherwise would have skipped right over. And this is one of those classic phrases that falls into that category, and the Lord appeared to him. When we hear that, we should say, what? The Lord appeared to him? How many people in the course of human history can say with Isaac that the Lord, in person, audible voice, like tangible way, appeared to me? Very, very few. And it is very important and significant when he does. And that's why this event is recorded for us. What is spoken to Isaac upon the Lord's appearing is a truth and a covenant hope and a binding promise that is meant to be preserved and echoed and taught and inculcated and instructed, you know, in the education and in the framework and the family worship of generations and generations to come. Something significant is going on here. Hence, the Lord appears to Isaac and says, do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. Is the promise of the Lord's abiding presence and blessing enough to give you faith that he will allow you to weather a providential occasion, a probationary hardship, a time of trial and testing, a famine, something that you may be experiencing? Absolutely it is. And we have proof of this in the experience of our own forebearer in the faith, namely Abraham and here Isaac specifically. The Lord appeared to him. Has the Lord appeared to us in our time of crisis? Now, a moment ago, I mentioned that you could count on maybe one hand or two, well, maybe more, the people that God has literally appeared to, at least in the Old Testament times. But the, revel the windows of Revelation broke wide open with the appearing of Jesus Christ. In the incarnation, God appeared to the world in Jesus, taking on flesh. And this is what John records, is the reality. And Jesus has appeared to us, indeed, in his word. So we might ask, well, we, can, we might certainly relate to Isaac and say, yeah, I know what a hardship feels like. I know what a certain famine that is, you know, being deprived of the resources that I think are necessary to sustain me. I can relate to what that feels like. But I don't know that I can really relate to God appearing to him. Oh, don't be so sure. Within these holy scriptures that we contain in our hands, as the Holy Spirit illumines them to our heart, God appears to us. Now, if you sat down one of the saints of old, and ask them an objective question. What would you rather have? A personal appearing to you by the Lord with a few words to encourage you, such as we have them in this paragraph, or an entire 
written canon of God's revelation spanning thousands of years through many, many individuals that lays out the full scope and full fulfillment upon the incarnation, the revelation of the covenant son, God becoming man from beginning to end. What would you rather have? Well, I'll bet you if they're walking in the spirit, they would choose number two. In other words, do not underestimate the value of God appearing to you, so to speak, in his word. Peter says this, 2 Peter, we'll cover it in you know, future weeks in our communion series, I trust. But he says, though we were eyewitnesses of the glory of Jesus Christ, speaking of the Mount of Transfiguration, nevertheless they have an even more profound testimony, which is the inscripturated, recorded, prophetic word. The Bible in the hands of the early church was as strong and even more so, if it could be said, of an assurance of God's personal appearing to the saints of old. Thus, this occasion provided opportunity for Isaac to realize where his hope truly lie. The Lord visited him in his hardship. There was this communion. There's this personal connection. There was this divine revelation. And God was uh, active through all of these elements. And then there was this faith-motivated application. What instruction does the Lord give to Isaac? He says to him, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Facing your own testing, facing your own providential hardship, occasion, difficult, difficulty, trial, famine of one sort or another. This is a message for us. This is a message for you. No matter the existential crisis you face, do not go down to Egypt. What does Egypt represent? Egypt represents hope in the provision of man. It represents man binding together in the Tower of Babel to secure a name for themselves and a secure social order and foundation so that they might endure and have some semblance of peace and order. That's Egypt. Egypt today, most often, in my estimation, takes the form of an onerous, self-exalting, God-denying federal government policy, legislature, administration, president, cabinet, you know, House, Senate, and so on and so forth or even the international so-called powers that seek to exploit the international crisis to offer hope for salvation and prove themselves fools all the way. These are the things that represent Egypt. Do not go down to Egypt. In your existential crisis, whatever that might be, look to Jesus Christ. Look to those who are in a similar situation as we might feel we are right now, like Isaac, and learn the lesson the easy way that some of these guys had to learn the hard way. In this case, Isaac is obedient. And in this sense, it's a marked improvement in the second generation over Abraham. Though Abraham did go down to Egypt, you know, he did seek uh, hope in the provision of the leeks and onions south of the border. Isaac is obedient. He does not go to Egypt, but he obeys the Lord. He remains sojourning in the land that the Lord promised he will be with him as long as he's there and he will bless him in his perfect way and in his perfect time. But this is an application, this is a commandment that requires faith. If there were no circumstances in your life to show forth faith, then it wouldn't be much of a witness to follow Jesus. If everything was just reasonably obvious to anyone with common sense, then the power of the Christian witness would be stunted. But when God sends his people through occasions like Isaac had of hardship and trial, and they don't go down to Egypt, those are the times that God often uses for the world to ask, what is the reason for the hope within you? 
We're crying out to Pharaoh to feed us. We're running to Egypt. We're frantically pulling out our hair for uh, you know, hope against hope in the ways and means of man. But you seem to be peaceably content to dwell in the assurance of something else. What gives you confidence? What gives you peace? And if that question is raised in so many words, you can answer as the Spirit gives ability that I am seeking to follow my Lord and Savior and to turn to Him in my existential crisis. After all, He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Second major point today, Isaac is assured of Abraham's covenantal estate, not only by way of providential occasion, but also, and most directly, by the word of God. And this is what God says in verses 3 through 5. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Isaac is assured of his covenantal estate, the inheritance of his father, by way of the word of God. This word comes by way of promises and conditions. First two promises are abiding presence and evident blessing. In verses one or in verse three, we read the following: "Sojourn in this land, I will be with you, and I will bless you." Abiding presence and his God's blessing. This is this is what is assured to Isaac by way of God's holy word. And as I said before, this is a message that is not just for Isaac, but it's for Isaac's spiritual lineage. Yes, even you and me today. Spiritual heirs of Abraham need to hear the word of God spoken to our forefather so many thousand years ago when he said, sojourn in this land, endure for the name and the call and the cause of the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ in Cross Lake, Minnesota, if that's where you're called, where you are called, and I will be with you and I will bless you. Now this testimony, legacy of assurance that the word to Isaac is true for each generation of the covenant faithful, is, is uh, chronicled all through the scriptures. Turn to Joshua 1 as an example. Hundreds of years later, centuries of years later, these promises are finally coming true in part. That is, the children of Abraham are about to receive the inheritance of the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. But once again, the armies in the land, the giants that occupied the place, the walls as tall as Jericho, right? This represented, again, an existential crisis, if you will. But the reassuring words that were given to Isaac are repeated to Joshua. Listen to what the Lord says, verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. You can say, just as I was with Isaac... The Lord could have just as easily said that, so I will be with you. Just as I was with Isaac when he sojourned in the land of Gerar during a time of famine, and then he planted his crops which overflew with, overflowed with a hundredfold bountiful harvest, so I will be with you. As I was with Moses, as I was with Isaac, as I was with Abraham, so I will be with you. And who is he encouraging at this time? His servant Joshua. I will not leave you nor forsake you. 
Be strong and courageous. In other words, Joshua, don't flee to Egypt. That was literally what the people wanted to do during the course of their wilderness wanderings. They said, don't go down to Egypt, even though you are in the wilderness. I will be with you and I will bless you. And the Lord was with them. And how did he manifest his presence? Cloud by day, fire by night. How did he manifest his provision? Manna each day, sufficient for the day's needs. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. In other words, the word of God. You see, I mean, all of the assurances, the ground for certainty is echoed again in this text all the way, or recalling God's word to Isaac. Shall not depart from your, from your mouth, but you shall meditate, that is, on the word of God, day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Once again, he says, verse 9, Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And one more text, we're tracing the legacy of the Word of God that was given to our forebearer, Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 cites this very language and, up and uh, applies it to the church of that day, and certainly it applies to us as well. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Keep your life, it's instructions, closing words, closing admonitions to the church, as the pastor of Hebrews writes, as I imagine, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Quoting from Joshua 1 and Psalm 56, in the spirit of Genesis 26, and in the spirit of the experience of Abraham himself and every generation of the covenanted ones, God's word has come with the assurance that he will be with you. How does God manifest his abiding presence with us today? Again, we may wish that we had a cloud by day and a fire by night to know what God's will is for us. But saints, we have something better. We have the indwelling spirit of God. We have the presence of the Lord indeed within our hearts and souls and for encouraging us with these words we are hearing even this day, exhorting us with convicting power of the Holy Spirit if we should stumble and remain in our sin, moving us to repent and return to our Lord Jesus Christ, motivating us to sing with uh, our whole hearts the songs of worship that we joined in today to the praise of Christ our Lord. This is the evidence of the abiding presence of God, the indwelling spirit that inhabits every true saint, every believer within this, within this room. This was the word of God promised to Isaac, fulfilled in even more manifold and awesome ways in our lives today after Christ has come. I will give you these lands. This will be established according to the oath. The Lord will multiply his offspring. So in the first instance, God's abiding presence and his blessing. And then there's three more examples uh, to give us, you know, what these blessings actually look, look like. I will give you all these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring. Now, if we were to 
uh, oh, in this evident blessing, the lands becoming Isaac's eventually, his children will receive them. We see that fulfilled in Joshua 1. The assurance of this, according to oath that God swore to his own hurt to accomplish, recorded in Genesis 15. The multiplication of Isaac's offspring, the promise that his child Jacob would bear many sons, who will bear many sons, and so on and so forth. These are the ways that God's word says the blessing to him will be evident. And notice, each time it's prefaced by an I will statement. Five times, I will be with you. I will, the I is implied, bless you. I will give you these lands the third time. I will establish the oath. And fourthly, I will multiply your offspring. We don't have time to turn there today, but in Jeremiah 21, the new covenant blessings are listed. And they're preceded by the same language. I will write my law upon your heart. I will supply a superior priesthood, namely Jesus Christ, so that everyone who is in Christ knows me. That would be the interpretation. So on and so forth. So the evident blessing of the I will statements comes into its fullness in the Jeremiah prophecy statements of I will gather for myself a people by atoning for their sins through the future Messiah and give them the inheritance that was promised and pictured all the way back in the land promises of old and are theirs in Christ Jesus even unto the inheritance of the new heavens and new earth. Now the weight of this covenant is further communicated in the way that God speaks this to Isaac. This is pretty powerful. I mentioned to you a moment ago, there are five I will statements, but this is followed by five because statements. In other words, you could match them up. I will be with you. And then verse five, because Abraham obeyed my voice. Again, I will bless you because Abraham kept my charge. I will give you all these lands because Abraham kept my commandments. I will establish my oath because Abraham followed my statutes. I will multiply your offspring because Abraham followed my laws. So there's five promises and five conditions, a sort of symmetry to communicate here the weight of the covenant. So there, those, those are a few remarks about the word of God that came as assurance to Isaac that the covenantal estate was indeed his. Again, the estate is assured by way of providential occasion, by way of the Word of God. And then final point this morning, extrinsic conditions. That is, conditions outside of Isaac himself. Notice this verse we just read. God is going to do all this because why? Well, because Abraham obeyed my voice. Once again, that should be surprising to you. You might have to read it a few times before it dawns on you like me, but this is what occurred to me upon further reflection. Doesn't it seem like it would make more sense that this would read the following, that, these verses, that this verse would read as follows? Isaac, uh, I will give you these lands. You know what? I will establish my oath. I will multiply your offspring because you obeyed my voice or if you obey my voice. I will establish you, Isaac, because or if you keep my charge. And I will multiply your offspring if you keep my commandments, if you keep my statutes, if you keep my laws. But this is not the way the conditions are arranged and proclaimed. No, these conditions are outside of Isaac, extrinsic to him. Listen closely. The covenant promises to Isaac are assured on the obedience of another. 
It is somebody else's obedience that assures the promises to Isaac. Think of it. Think of it in gospel terms. Is that true of you and me? Yes, saints, it is. Who is our covenant head? Who did Abraham prefigure? Jesus Christ. Uh, quickly, uh, or just briefly, older kids in the room, if you're in my class last week, I think it was, week before maybe, can anyone remember the two types of obedience that Jesus Christ followed? What were the two types of Christ's obedience? Does anyone know? Adults, you can you know, answer if the kids come up short on this one. You guys remember this? Two kinds of obedience. All right. Three, two, one. Now adults can jump in. Theology question here. Oh, pop quiz. Two kinds of Christ's obedience. Anyone know the answer? Obey your father and mother. Well, it is a command to obedience, a little different context. Good stab at it, though. Anyone? Any ascribing theologians in the room? All right. Sorry to put you on the spot. Not sorry. Active, passive. These are the two kinds of obedience that Jesus Christ fulfilled. His active obedience and his passive obedience. What is Jesus Christ's active obedience? It is Jesus, in the incarnation, Jesus is born, and one of his duties is to keep the law of God perfectly and in its entirety, to pass the test that Adam failed. This is why Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and passes the test. This is why Jesus lives for 33 years with an impeccable, uh, with an impeccable record of perfect obedience to God's law. It was his active obedience. When Jesus dies, and, that, and his righteousness is accounted to us, the word is imputed, we are counted as actively righteous before the Lord. That which Jesus secured and earned in his faithfulness becomes our own in the great exchange, as it's called, when we become saved and born again and regenerate. It is the active obedience of Jesus that is credited to us. That is the ground, partially, of our salvation, but it's also the passive. Was it enough that Jesus followed God's law perfectly for us to be saved? No, he also had to die in our place. And this is called passive because it means submitting to the will of the Father to absorb the wrath that we deserved. Thus, on these two accounts, the obedience of another, the passive and active obedience and fulfilling the law of God and dying in our place, that is the ground of assurance for our hope of eternal life. The scriptures are profound. When they say, because Abraham obeyed, when the Lord reveals this to Isaac, because Abraham obeyed my voice, Abraham kept my charge, Abraham kept my commandments. The point here is that the assurance of covenant to Isaac is on the basis of the obedience of another. Abraham, in this sense, is a type of Christ. Abraham's obedience was not sufficient, ultimately speaking, but it did, in the couple times he was obedient, point forward to the perfectly sufficient obedience of the son of Abraham to come. And that would be Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, who secured our covenant inheritance because he was faithful unto death, actively obeying the law of God and passively submitting to the will of the Father to crush him as the cost for your sin and mine, if you know him today. There are two instances. Let me close with this. By the way, this concept is called federal obedience. Well, let me just, extrinsic conditions. Time is short, but I... I just have to mention two things. Extrinsic conditions, conditions outside Isaac. There's a couple other that are implied. First of all, divine oath. Genesis 15, 7 through 18 is the background for this. In other words, Isaac, you can be assured of your salvation 
of these covenant promises because I, in so many words, established them by oath to your father Abraham in verse 3. So there it is. One of the conditions of assurance for the promises to Isaac was the divine oath sworn to his father. And the nature of this divine oath was as follows. It was the absolute fulfillment guarantee on even if the covenant terms demanded the death of the greater party. So when the animals were split and God appears once again as a flaming torch in a smoking fire pot and passes between the pieces, what is communicated in that covenant ritual is the following. This covenant will absolutely be fulfilled even if it requires the death of the greater party. Did the covenant to the sons of Isaac require the death of the greater party? It sure did. Jesus Christ himself died. He was split for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Just like the sacrifices and even that ritual of old prefigured, he bore on the cross of Calvary in the thorns on his brow and the nails in his hands and feet the terms and conditions of the death of the greater party to secure our covenant promises. So this is a condition. Now, did, could Isaac suffer for his own a salvation? Could Abraham suffer for his? No. Extringent conditions, divine oath upon the death of the greater party. Thus, the promises are assured. Secondly, privileged birth. I swore to Abraham, your father. Another key phrase. Because Isaac is Abraham's son, that is an extrinsic condition. The privilege of his birth, the sovereign hand of God in electing him, just as Romans 9 says the same about Jacob. Jacob and Esau, one was elect and the other wasn't. That's the picture. Even though they were twins, they came from the same womb, and God made his decision long before they were born. Nevertheless, it was the privilege of sovereign birth, a miracle of regeneration. Can you and I relate to this? You bet. You are assured the promises of God by privileged birth. I'm talking new birth. If you are a believer, you are born again. And by that privileged birth where God chose you, resurrected you from the death of sin, gave you a new heart, caused you to be born again in spiritual terms, thereby by that extrinsic condition, so the promises are assured to you. And then in closing, and to reiterate that point we were making earlier, federal obedience, divine oath, privileged birth, federal or representative obedience. Because Abraham in this picture was the covenant head, because he obeyed and kept the commandments, statutes, and so forth, this was the means whereby Isaac was assured of the promises. Now let me remind you of two instances of obedience in Abraham's life. I just went back over the record of Abraham, and these are the two that stood out clearly to me, where God commanded and Abraham obeyed. Toward the beginning of his calling, God commands Abraham to, to do what? To leave his familiar surroundings, his pagan culture and country, and to journey unto a place that God will show him on the way. Thus begins Abraham's calling. When Abraham is ransomed from his association's former life in sin and idolatry unto being a new man and regenerate, so to speak, in Christ, in so many words, it involves a coming out, a taking on of this call. And he obeys. And then the second major example of Abraham's obedience is in the offering of the covenant son. In Genesis 22, God commands him, take your son, your only son, the one that you love, and take him up this hill and crucify him there. And so Abraham does. He obeys, strikingly so. The beloved son, the only one through which the covenant could ever hope to be fulfilled. Abraham marches him with the wood borne upon his shoulders to 
execute his own son in obedience to God the Father. Now, these are two particular examples of Abraham's obedience that speak to the active and passive obedience of the son of Abraham to come. You see, when Dave was preaching out of Philippians 2 some months ago, we had this pictured in one little song there. It's an incredible song, however brief. The Carmen Christi it's called. And therein we have this picture of Christ leaving the place of his former residence in the incarnation, stooping low to be with us and taking on the form of a servant and stooping lower still, submitting to the passive obedience requirements of the covenant and dying in our place. But after Jesus fulfills these two things, he is resurrected. And by these grounds, we are saved. But long before Jesus came, in the obedience of Abraham himself, he left a place where he want, that he once knew and was familiar unto a place that we showed him on the way, a sort of foretelling of incarnation. And along the way in his life, towards the end of the record, he is commanded to take his only son and, sacri and sacrifice him. Of course, God spares him by substitute, nevertheless picturing a covenant son that will be sacrificed in the future, Christ's active obedience. And so you see, with the fullness of Scripture, Tying these pictures together with what was prefigured in the experience before, we have assurance and security of the covenant also by extrinsic conditions. There was a divine oath sworn at the cost of the life of the greater party, Jesus Christ's own death. There was this ground of our own adoption by way of privileged birth, a miracle of regeneration in our soul. And there is the ground, there is of our own gospel and covenantal inheritance based on the obedience of another, on the obedience of Jesus Christ. So by these means, Isaac was assured of Abraham's covenantal estate would be his by way of providential occasion, by way of the word of God, by way of extrinsic conditions. But it speaks far more, these words do, this message does, than the experience of Abraham could contain. It speaks to our experience as well. Thus, the aim of this message, however many generations, covenantally along the line that we appear, nevertheless, we find in these passages the ground of our own gospel inheritance. God has used providential occasions to awaken your soul to your need for Him, I trust, if you are a believer in this room. He has granted unto you a reverence and a reality and affirmation that the Word of God is true. You are a sinner and Christ is the only Savior. And you recognize that it's because of what Christ alone did that you have salvation, hope, and eternal life. Thus, upon this message, you have repented and believed. Last thing I'll say, if you have not, if you're in the hearing of this message, and this experience is not yours, you cannot relate, because you have not trusted the obedience of one outside yourself to die in your place and to fulfill the law on your behalf, and recognize that you deserve to die, repent and turn to Jesus Christ. Because you are in an existential crisis. Tomorrow you may die. We do not know. How many people were sound asleep just a few days ago in that condominium on the beautiful shores of Miami Beach or whatever it was, and in the middle of the night, a floor collapsed to who knows why, and a third or a half of that building was all of the sudden a pile of rubble and 9-11 style around the feet of, this, of the remainder of the structure. And right now, a rescue mission 
is ensuing to try to claw through the rubble and find a whimper and a cry and someone hanging on to life and somebody maybe that can be rescued. But as we look upon that instance, that catastrophe that took place in Florida this week, our hearts are heavy because likely tens and tens and dozens of people are dead. That is an, extre- that is an existential crisis. Living without the assurance of where your eternal soul resides in your own home at night. There's only one place where the foundations do not have so much as a hairline crack. There is only one place, building, destination, hope, utopian future, whatever term you might want to use, heaven itself, where the designer and the builder is God, and thus is absolutely assured security. And that covenantal inheritance comes by one way, one truth, and one life, Jesus Christ. And this is a message that needs to be heard if you're sifting through the rubble in Miami or if you're sleeping comfortably in Cross Lake, Minnesota. If you are an unbeliever, repent. You know not the day or the hour when that existential crisis will be upon you. And God forbid it would come at a moment you least expect like a thief in the night and there's no chance to repent. This message, if anyone were to hear it, whose soul is not grounded and assured and the covenant work of Jesus Christ and his active and passive obedience, that soul needs to repent and to believe. Let us pray that the Lord would encourage us and that he would call the lost to repentance as a consequence of his word proclaimed. O Lord Jesus, we thank you for the message of Scripture that reassures us of our eternal hope based not upon ourselves but upon the work of one outside of us, the covenant son, the ultimate one, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. Upon his obedience, we make his appeal. Lord, those of us who know you, if we were to stand before your throne today and to show a passport for the new heavens and new earth, we have nothing to display but the obedience of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And to that, we make our appeal. For any who are lost in the hearing of these words, I pray that the scripture proclaimed and the gospel in clarity and truth so far as you have used this time to do so, I pray that would move them to repent and to believe. Only in you, Lord Jesus, is deliverance, hope, encouragement, eternal life, and the promise of the inheritance that is guaranteed all who are in you. We thank you, Lord, for this message. May it encourage us. May it call the lost to repentance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.